A lot's happening this morning. We, Susan and I both spoke at the end of the town hall last week, and uh, I wish I could repeat everything we said, but basically just that it's an honor and it's a, a trust in our, this, in our leadership at this time that we really value and we're grateful for. And we ask for your prayer this season. I feel the, the, the weight of this season. I felt it all through this process, but even more now. And the last piece is that we are excited about the future, that we are not in an interim phase just kind of waiting for something to happen, that we believe that God is going to grow us and give us purpose in this time. And so I, I feel God's blessing and grace and encouragement. So thank you. Thank you to the leadership that's walked with us through this time. And uh, this is Neil Crook. He's going to be speaking today. He, has work, he works right now with uh, Boston Consulting Group. He's got a degree in law from... Uh, uh, huh? Exeter in the UK. And from Exeter. <coughs> uh, I've never been to Exeter. I don't even know where it is, but it's... Uh, He'll, he'll speak of it clearly in his South Alabama accent in just a minute. <laughs> but he also, he has an MBA and a master's uh, in divinity. divinity. So no man can have two masters, but three is possible. <laughs> so uh, anyway, well, bless this man. Lord Jesus, thank you so much for Manil. We're praying for your clarity and fresh anointing and blessing over him, him right now. Thank you for his, his family, for Katie, the girls. Soak them, Lord, and, and bring your word with great depth. In Jesus' name, amen. amen, amen. Good morning. How's everyone doing? It's more responsive than I was expecting. That's great. <laughs> I, was, uh, I just want to say a quick word of thanks to my wife without whose gentle reminder this morning, I probably wouldn't be showing up for about another five minutes. <laughs> so those of you who manage to organize your own time and your own calendars, well done, you are better than me. <laughs> so this morning we're going to be looking at Daniel 3, and we're actually going to be closing out the season that we've been going through Daniel. So if you have your Bibles or your phones, go ahead and look up Daniel 3. So I actually want to start this morning with a quote from C.S. Lewis. Now, Lewis, most of us know, he uh, is well known for having authored the Chronicles of Narnia series, but he was a professor in the uh, beginning of the 20th century in the UK, near and dear to my own heart, and uh, he wrote this essay called The Weight of Glory, and in that essay, he wrote this, it would seem that God finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling around with drink and sex and ambition, when infinite joy is offered. We're like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by an offer of a holiday by the sea. We're far too easily pleased. And what Lewis is saying in this quote is that he believes that there is this immeasurable joy, this infinite happiness that's available to everybody. But that's not our experience. My guess is if you go to most people and you say to them, how are you doing, much like I did at the beginning, and if they're being honest with you, they're not going to say, you know, I'm experiencing infinite happiness. <laughs> <clears throat> that hasn't been my experience, I must admit. But why is that? And Lewis says it's because we compromise. It's because we fool around, as he says, with drink and sex and ambition. Now, he's not saying that these things are bad, and he's not necessarily saying that 
They don't have any happiness in them. You know, social drinking, career, ambition, these things are not necessarily bad things. And there's, there's some good in them and there's happiness in them. But what he is saying is if you compare the happiness in these things with what could be offered, there's a huge, huge disparity. And he said the problem is that we too often compromise. And he says there's two reasons for that. The first one he gives is that we just don't know maybe that there's something better on offer. We don't know that, you know, all these things aren't the best that can be. We're like the child who's playing with the mud. We've no idea that there's this seaside and there's this beach that we could be playing with. And the other thing he says is, well, we might know that, but the problem is we're far too easily pleased. You see, again, we play around with these small things because the reality of the joy and the small happiness that we get from them is more real to us than the happiness or the infinite joy that Lewis is talking about. So the key question is, he links it with our desires. And the key question for us today is, what is it that you desire? What's the capture and the focus of your heart? Or to put it in more Christian terms, what is it that we worship? And Daniel 3 this morning is talking specifically about worship, and it's asking that question. And there are three questions that I want to ask today, and hopefully the text can answer for us. The first question is, what is worship? The second question I want to ask is, who or what are we worshiping? And then thirdly, how do we worship? So what is worship? Who or what do we worship? And then lastly, how do we worship? So let's kick into Daniel 3. So verse 1. It says, King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold whose height was 60 cubits and its breadth 6 cubits, and he set it up on the plain of Jura in the province of Babylon. Now if you remember back, we talked about Daniel 2, and we talked about Daniel having a dream. And in that dream, uh, rather Nebuchadnezzar having a dream, And in that dream, Nebuchadnezzar saw this huge statue, and it was made up of four materials, gold, silver, bronze, iron, and clay. And each of those materials represented a different kingdom that would rule. Well, it seems like this is stuck around in Nebuchadnezzar's head, because a few uh, years later, he's now built this gigantic statue, and this time it's all of gold, or at least probably gold-plated. And this isn't a small kind of tiny little image. This is a big thing. We're told it's 60 cubits big. Now, 60 cubits is around about 90 feet, So that's probably an eight or nine story building. This is a big, big thing. We're not told um, what exactly it's an image of. Some people have said, okay, well, possibly it's Nebuchadnezzar. It's unlikely that it was Nebuchadnezzar. Kings didn't typically make statues of themselves at this time. More likely it's some sort of representation of the main god of Babylon, which was Marduk. And he puts this thing in the plain of Dura. Now, typically, if you made an image or a statue of a god, you would put it in the temple or near the temple. But he hasn't. He's put it in this plain. So he's got this 90-foot shiny gold statue that's going to catch the light. There's a fair bit of sunshine out there. And he's stuck it in the middle of a plane where everyone can see it. And then we read on. It says in verse 2 and 3, Then Nebuchadnezzar sent to gather the satraps, the prefects, and the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Then the satraps, the prefects, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces gathered for that dedication of the image that he had set up. And they stood before that image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. So here he sends out, he's built this huge statue, and he sends out this invite, and he invites this long list of people. Now what you see, or what you'll realize in this list, is that it's in rank order. So we start with the satraps who kind of govern everyone, and then we go down and down and down the list, And eventually there's this catch-all and anyone else who's kind of an official in the province. And what you're reading is that basically anyone who's anyone in this kingdom 
anyone who's got any kind of leadership function whatsoever, they're being told to come, and they should come. And then right away in the next verse, we go through that list again. And that seems strange to us. It seems repetitive. But what the narrator is doing is he's saying to them, look, be aware. There's this huge crowd of people that have come. It's the important people, and they're all here because the king has called them. He's setting up this idea that everybody who's anybody has come, and they're all in one place. So then we read in verses 4 to 7, And the herald proclaimed aloud, You are commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages, that when you hear the sound of the horn, the pipe, the lyre, the trigon, the harp, the bagpipe, and every kind of music, you're to fall down and worship the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. I'm going to struggle with that word. I can sense it. And whoever does not fall down and worship will immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. So we have this huge statue. We have now this huge crowd of nobles. And off to one side is what seems like this pretty big orchestra. And we're told it has uh, horns, which is kind of like trumpets, pipes, a little like flutes, uh, lyres and trigons, again, a little bit like small harps. And then we're told we have bagpipes. Doesn't really make a lot of sense to me. Apparently the Scottish have made their way to the ancient Near East. (coughs) Already now I have a picture of Braveheart and I'm thinking people with half-blue faces. It's it's not necessarily helpful. But what we're seeing is, again, we're seeing a big statue. We're seeing a big crowd of nobles and we're seeing this big orchestra. Everything is big. This is a big deal. The narrator is saying this is a big deal. You've got to pay attention to this. And then the herald comes along and says, now listen, when this orchestra strikes up the um, 600 BC equivalent to Beethoven's fifth, you've got to fall to your knees and worship, right? So, ba-da-da-da, boom, fall down and worship. (laughs) And he says, if you don't, there's this furnace that's still lying around from when we constructed this image, and we're going to boot this thing up, and we're going to throw you in it. Now, that seems a little bit disproportionate to us. I mean, he's the king. He's got some flexibility, right? He could put them in prison, He could maybe beat them. He could maybe ostracize them. But he says, no, no, no. I'm going to throw you in the fiery furnace. And there's not much coming back from that. Why is this? Why is it so disproportionate? Well, we know that a few years into Nebuchadnezzar's reign, he's actually had to go around the kingdom and he's had to quash this rebellion that's been happening. We also know that he's had to make some specific visits to some vassal kings that he set up because they weren't paying the tribute to Nebuchadnezzar. And he had to go and settle them out and calm them down. So he's facing civil unrest. So he's thinking to himself, well, how do I keep peace and uh, civility across this kingdom that is now mine and I'm running? He's like, I know, I'll bring in all the great and the good, anyone who's any kind of leader, and I'm going to make them swear allegiance to me and to Babylon and our religion. That way I can keep conformity. Now, the problem is that part of this crowd includes the Jews. Now, is this going to be a problem for the Jews? Well, if we look back a little earlier in the Bible, and in Leviticus 26, it says... You shall not make idols for yourselves or erect an image or a pillar, and you shall not set up a figured stone in your land to bow down to it. Now, you can interpret that maybe in different ways, but that kind of sounds an awful lot like me to exactly what they're being asked to do. And then going on from that, you read in the prophets uh, in the Bible that they warn them. They warn them if they, if they uh, worship these idols, what was going to happen is that God was going to use the Babylonians, and they were going to come, and they were going to be taken into captivity. So now they're in captivity for the very thing that Nebuchadnezzar is asking them to do. He's asking them to worship, and they can't do that. And in Daniel's mind, so the author of Daniel, when you say, well, is this what was in his mind? If we look forward to Daniel 7 and chapter 14, uh, verse 14, Daniel's describing a vision he's had of uh, one like the Son of Man, which we take to believe is Jesus. 
And he says to him, to Jesus was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all people, nations, and languages, so that same phrase, peoples, nations, and languages, that they should serve him. So what Nebuchadnezzar is doing is he's saying, I want you to come and I want you to swear allegiance and give worship to something that is only appropriate for you to worship God. So now we have tension, right? Now we have this crowd of nobles. We have this big image. We have Nebuchadnezzar in a big band. And when the band plays, I'm supposed to fall down in worship. And that is not good. What am I going to do? So let's go back to the question that we originally set up. We said, what is worship? Now, worship is a word that we don't typically use very much outside of church. <clears throat> and when we do, it's typically seen as something that we do or we participate in. So it's singing songs, it's going to a church, it's maybe people think choirs, maybe people think incense, whatever it might be. Very much something we do or participate in. Being British, I obviously looked up the Oxford English Dictionary. <clears throat> and one of the definitions in there is to treat someone or something with the reverence and adoration that's appropriate to a deity. So it's taking it beyond just uh, something that we do, and it's saying, no, it's much more. It's something about our heart and our heart's desires and the things we kind of value. It's to do with how we give reverence to things. David Foster Wallace, who some of you may have heard of, was a prize-winning novelist. He grew up in an atheist home, and his views on religion were a little bit mixed. But one thing he once said is, here's something else that's weird but true. In the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there is actually no such thing as atheism. There is no such thing as not worshipping. Everybody worships. What Wallace is saying is you might not believe in a deity. You might not believe that there's this God sat up there who's controlling us or not controlling us, whatever your preference of belief is. But he's saying that there is something in everybody's life that you give the reverence and adoration that's only appropriate for a God. And you might say, well, what it, why is that? If we go back far enough, we get back to a guy called Socrates. And he said, you know, everybody at the end of the day is driven or motivated by this desire for happiness, personal happiness. He said, people might differ in the way they seek that. Maybe they seek that in money and wealth. Maybe they seek that in careers. But he said, ultimately, they're driven by this desire for happiness. And we will chase those things and we will pursue them and we will cling to them because we think that through them or by them, we are going to get this happiness and this satisfaction that we want. Martin Luther, a 15th century theologian, said, you know, whatever your heart clings to and confides in, that's really your God. That is your functional savior. And so Luther's saying exactly the same. We all look to something or someone to save us or to bring us the happiness and the joy we're looking for. So again, where do we get to with this? What is worship? I want to say to you that worship is either the implicit or the explicit recognition of what we value most and cherish in our hearts. So it's not something we do. It's the implicit or the explicit recognition of what we value most in our hearts. And this is exactly what the people are being asked to do in this Daniel text. The king Nebuchadnezzar has called them to the plain of Jura, And he has this statue, and he's asking them to bow down. And he's saying, you know, what is paramount for you? Is it the places that you've come from? Is it the places that we've captured? Or is it here? Is it now? Is it Babylon? And is it me, Nebuchadnezzar? And they're being asked, you know, what are you going to place your ultimate allegiance in? In other words, they're saying, you know, who or what are you going to worship? And so that's what I want to talk about now. Who or what do we worship? In verses 8 to 12, 
we're about to read, we're seeing in the story already this pattern of conformity, right? So Nebuchadnezzar's built this statue. He's called everyone, and they've come. He's told them to worship, and they're worshiping. There's this pattern of conformity happening. And from the outside, you look at this, and you think, well, if you're non-conforming, if you don't do what you say, he says, you must be crazy. Why would you do this? And there, in 8 to 12, we read, Therefore, at that time, certain Chaldeans came forward and maliciously accused the Jews. They declared to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. You, O king, have made a decree that every man who hears the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, etc., 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 uh, should bow down and worship the golden image. And whoever does not fall down and worship should be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. There are certain Jews whom you have appointed over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, pay no attention to you. They don't serve your gods or worship the image that you have set up. Now, I have four girls, and I think it's fair to say that they don't always have the best interests of their siblings in the forefront of their minds. (laughs) And every now and again, one of them will come to me and they'll say, Daddy, Daddy, didn't you tell us to do X? And sure as eggs is eggs, they will come straight after that with, well, they're not doing it. And you just know that it's coming. And it seems like my kids have probably been reading the Bible a lot more closely than I thought they had because they're taking a leaf straight out of the Chaldean playbook, right? <clears throat> the Chaldeans come along and they say, oh, great king, didn't you say X? And you know what's coming, right? You know what's coming. Now, the Chaldeans were a kind of a subset of the Babylonians. They were the locals. And by this point in time, the word Chaldean had come to mean kind of like an educated person. It was the astrologers, it was the priests, it was anyone with education. Now, if you recall back at the uh, end of chapter 2, when Daniel interpreted Nebuchadnezzar's dream, he promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and he put them in these positions of the wise men. So what's happened is these Chaldeans have come along and they said, look, not only have you given someone else the job that was probably ours, but you've given it to these foreigners that we've only just captured. What are you doing? And they are none too subtle in their jibes. They say, you said, don't we do this? You gave these people jobs. You set them over the kingdom. And now they're not doing what you say. And they're not worshipping your gods. So what does Nebuchadnezzar now do? He's built up this situation with people from all around the kingdom, the important people. He's, the, the goal is to bring everyone under one kind of banner and to make them all swear allegiance to him. And now he finds that there's this group of people apparently not drinking the Kool-Aid. What's he going to do? So, in verse 13 to 15, it says, Then Nebuchadnezzar, in a furious rage, commanded that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought. So they brought these men before the king. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said to them, Is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? Now, if you're ready, when you hear the sound of the horn, the pipe, the lyre, the trigon, the harp, the bagpipe, and every kind of music to fall down and worship the image that I've made, well and good. But if you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you from my hands? So Nebuchadnezzar calls them out. His authority is being questioned, and he has to deal with this. But whether it's because he doesn't trust the Chaldeans or whether he's trying to show that he's being merciful to the crowd, or whatever it might be, he says, I'm going to give you one more chance. So what's going to happen? We're going to be here. The band's going to play again. Da-da-da-da. If you fall down, great. And if you fall down in worship, you're not going to get uncomfortably warm and everyone's a winner. 
But if you don't, there is this furnace. And then he comes to a key question. Because he says, who is the God who can deliver you out of my hands? And for him, this, this question is entirely rhetorical because he's looking around. He's seeing hundreds of people do exactly what he says because he says it, because he rules and reigns over this powerful kingdom. And to him, the answer is obvious. No one. If I want to kill you, who is going to stop me? There is no one. And so he looks at them, not expecting an answer, and he just says, so who's going to rescue you out of my hands? In verse 16 to 18, then, we read, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered, And said this to the king, Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. So King Nebuchadnezzar has issued them this challenge. What are you going to do? Who is going to save you? And they come back and they say, We don't need to answer you in this. Which I have to say on the face of it, when I read it, it seemed a little rude. Kind of seemed like they were pushing their luck. There is this fiery furnace after all. It's kind of like when my kids turn around to me and go, whatever. Even a three-year-old. I'm going to guess she's learned it from my sisters. But they're not. What they're actually saying is, we don't need to answer you this because God doesn't need anyone to defend him. God can defend himself. And then they, then they respond, and they, they respond in a kind of a strange way, if you read it at face value. They say, if this be so, then God can deliver us, and you're going to find an answer to your question. And then they say, but if not, well, we're still not going to worship anyway. Now, that seems a little strange, the reading, but it's worth noting that it mirrors exactly what Nebuchadnezzar had said to them and the question that he'd posed to them. He said, look, if you are willing to bow down in worship, if you're willing to do that, then all is well and good. But if you're not willing to do that, then there's the fiery furnace. And they come back and they respond, look, if God chooses to save us, well then we know he's able and you're going to get an answer to your question. But if not, if God chooses not to save us, then we're just going to worship anyway. Because your gods are not our gods. This is the big freedom moment for Braveheart fans. Right? <laughs> this, is, this is William Wallace led out and they're challenging him and he's screaming freedom. And this is the freedom moment. We are not going to worship, right? So let's come back to our question, who or what do we worship? You know, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego had this choice. What are they going to worship? What are they going to say is ultimate? And there is significant pressure around them to conform Now, remember again that we said that worship is a reflection of what's paramount and what's foremost in our lives, right? We talked about David Foster Wallace and his quote, but I want to read on just a little bit because worship and the thing that we make paramount, there's many things, and probably as I say that to you, you're already thinking, well, yeah, he's probably going to go into things like money, relationships and sex, etc., ambition, career, and that's, no, there's some truth there. Listen to what David Foster Wallace says. If you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you're never going to have enough. Never feel that you have enough. If you worship your body and beauty and sexual allure, you're always going to feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally grieve you. 
If you worship power, you're going to end up feeling weak and afraid, and you will need ever more power over others to numb your own fear. If you worship your intellect, being seen as smart, you're going to end up feeling stupid, a fraud, and always on the verge of being found out. What Wallace is saying is you pursue these things because you think through them you're going to get recognition, you're going to get satisfaction, you're ultimately going to get happiness. And what he's saying is these things actually don't ultimately make good gods. They make bad gods and they destroy us. But it's not just these things that can become uh, more important to us. Good things can. You know, we think about marriage, we think about family. These are good things. We think about working hard to provide for our family. This is a good thing. But any of these things can become an ultimate thing and get pushed to a level beyond, way beyond what they were ever intended. There's a pastor in New York called Tim Keller. Um, and he said this. He said, if anything is more fundamental than God to your happiness, identity, and meaning in life, then that thing has basically become your idol. You know, money is necessary, as we said. Marriage and family are good and are good blessings. But these become or can become ultimate things. And he said, if we look to some created thing to give us the meaning, hope, and happiness that only God can bring, it will eventually fail to deliver, and it'll break our hearts. You know, people, as we said, uh, reflecting on Socrates' quote, are ultimately driven by happiness. So these things we pursue, whether it be money, career, etc., these things that we're pursuing, they have an ultimate goal. They're symptoms. They're symptoms of the need to bring ourselves happiness, right? And what does this mean? It means that we've essentially taken God from the throne of our lives and we've displaced him with ourselves. In essence, we have become our ultimate idol. In our culture, that's going to sound pretty strange. Um, Our culture is one that's very individualistic. And when you talk to people, it becomes very apparent very quickly. They talk of their rights. They talk of my feelings. They talk of um, what I can do and how I'm fulfilled and how I'm actualized. And therefore, when we talk about, okay, well, what is it if there's someone outside of you whose value you place more weight on than your own, that's seen as a failing. I think if you talk to most people and you say, look, I'm suggesting that you take this other person's opinion and this other person's rules and you make it more important than your own thoughts, your own feelings, your own rules, you're going to be seen as weak. Because the ultimate epitome of strength and power for us is if we have that autonomy over ourselves to guide ourselves and to find strength only from ourselves and to be honest this is a place where christianity though has to be countercultural, because we do say that someone's opinion is more important than our own we do say that someone's rules and guidance is more important than what we can dream up and what we can think of so this becomes the crux of the issue right the crux of the issue and the key question is is god on the throne of your life or are we Is God on the throne of your life, or are we? And for anyone in here who wouldn't consider themselves to be a Christian right now, or wouldn't consider themselves particularly religious, I would just encourage you to think about, well, what are the things that you pursue? What are the things that you're going after, thinking they're going to bring you happiness? And just ask, are they ultimately going to be a good God? See, the Bible makes it clear that actually we are encouraged to pursue peace and our own happiness and our own joy, But it gives us a choice. It says we can either pursue those things with the things that we think will bring them or we can pursue God. And in the strange upside-down logic of God and his kingdom and the way things work, when we pursue him, it's then we actually achieve the peace and the joy and the happiness that we were looking for. For those of us here that would call ourselves Christians, 
we know that it's not a one-and-done decision, right? We know that you don't just decide one day, okay, I'm going to do this, and then no more decisions. It's a daily choice. And the sad fact is that sometimes our worship becomes subconscious. We don't even realize what it is we're pursuing and what we're worshiping. A few questions to think about. Who or what do you think about when you're alone? When you have free thinking space, what is it your mind leaps to? How do you spend your money or focus your resources, whether that be time or money? Are there areas of life that when they come up, they cause deep emotional conflict within you that you can't shake, whether that be anger or guilt or fear? Is there some area that inexplicably causes these things to arise? What is that, and why do you think that might be? Again, Christians, how do you respond to unanswered prayer? When our prayers go unanswered, what's our response to that? Basically, all these things are getting at what is it that you really pursue and worship? So we've talked about what is worship, and I've said that I think it's a reflection of what we really value in our hearts. And we've discussed what and how we worship, uh, what we worship rather, and I've suggested that ultimately we choose between worshiping ourselves or worshiping God. The last question that I wanted to address is how do we worship? And again, we can come back to the text for this, although surprisingly the answer comes from Nebuchadnezzar himself. So he has called everyone. He's called um, Shadrach, Mishnah, and Abednego out, and he said to them, right, what are you going to do? Are you going to worship? So he's gone, he's gone to the band, and he said, okay, let's take it from the top. Let's see what these guys do. And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, no, wait. Wait. And so they answer him, and they say, no, we are not going to worship. And if you thought Nebuchadnezzar was mildly annoyed before, he's really ticked off now. The text says he goes red in the face, his countenance changes, and he is furious. And he says, I want you to heat the furnace seven times hotter than normal. That's kind of an idiom. He's basically just saying, I want it really hot. Make this thing really, really hot. And then he has Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego bound, and they get dragged up to the top of this furnace. And we're told that the furnace is so hot that the people dragging them up, who are just about to let them go and let them fall into this furnace, are killed by the flames because it's so hot. There is no way that anyone's going to say, oh, maybe it was a fluke. Maybe they fell into a cold patch. No, no, no. This is hot, right? It's killing those that even come near it. And so then we see them fall, and they fall into this furnace. And you bear in mind the initial readers of this text. They don't know what's going to happen. And he fall, they fall into this furnace, and there's this moment of pause. And the narrator takes the camera from the furnace, and he pans left to Nebuchadnezzar. And if you ever watched a film where at that crucial moment they clip to another scene, this is exactly what the heroes are feeling. What has happened to the people falling in the flames? And we look at Nebuchadnezzar's face, and he goes from fury and outrage, and then he suddenly, on his face you see astonishment, and some texts say amazement. And what the translation of that word doesn't actually capture is there's an element of fear in his face as well. And he looks puzzled, and he looks round at those around him, and he's Three and three, right? Yeah, 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 three, three. Who's the fourth? And he looks in and there's this fourth figure in the flames and he says it's one like a son of the gods, which is just his way of saying some kind of heavenly being is in there. And he looks at them and he's like, not only is there a fourth person who appears to have gone involuntarily, but <laughs> none of these people are hurt. In fact, they look like they're walking around having a bit of a stroll. And now he's puzzled, so he goes to the the bottom of the furnace where there would likely have been a door and a window that you could see what was going on, and he calls them out. And so they come out, and they stand there, 
I'm assuming, pretty amazed themselves at what's just taken place. And everybody in the crowd is still there, and they gather around, and they see that not only are they not dead, but they've not even been hurt. And they find out, and the text says, there's not even a smell of smoke or fire on them. Now, any of you that have sat around a campfire late at night chatting and got up the next day, you know you stink. (laughs) It it, it is disgusting. It's a hazard of going camping. It's one of the reasons why you should never camp. We invented hotels, so we didn't need to camp. (laughs) In case you're wondering, that isn't a main application. But there isn't even the smell of fire or smoke upon them. This miracle is absolute. There is no claiming that God hasn't been involved. And so Nebuchadnezzar recognizes what's happened. He now calls them servants of the most high God. Now, Nebuchadnezzar is probably polytheistic. He probably believes in many God. What's important for him is, who's the chief dog, right? Who's the top one? And he says, yours is the most high God. And he says, there is no other God who can rescue in this way. He recognizes the sovereignty of God in what has happened. And he says, no one else, no other God can rescue in this way. But then even more importantly, note his comment then about how we worship. In verse 28, he says, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants, who trusted him and set aside the king's command and yielded up their own bodies rather than serve and worship any God except their own. So what he's saying is that they were so committed They were so all in that they held absolutely nothing back. So what does this mean for us, right? On a simplistic level, we could say, well, do you worship X or Y? We could say, do you worship God or do you worship money? Do you worship God or do you worship relationships and sex? Do you worship God or do you worship blank? And the problem is that those blanks can be many things, but they can also be good things. It's too simplistic to say that, right? Let's take marriage as an option, right? You get married. Marriage is a good thing. It's a blessing from God. It's a, it's a helpful thing. But listen to what Tim Keller says. Again, if you marry someone except expecting them to be like a God, it's only inevitable that they're going to disappoint you. It's not that you should try and love your spouse less but rather that you should know and love God all the more, right? This is coming back to the idea with C.S. Lewis says. These aren't necessarily bad things. They're not necessarily without happiness, but in comparison to how you love God, you should love God all the more. Jesus in Luke 14 talks about who can be his disciples. And he says, you know, if you want to come after me, if you want to be my disciple, you have to hate your father and mother. Now, what he's not saying is literally hate your father and mother. That goes completely against commands earlier in the Bible that says we should love and honor and cherish our parents. But what he's saying is if you take the relationships and you put them side by side and you compare them, the love that we have for our family and our parents is going to look like hate in comparison to the love that we have for God. Now, I'm going to guess that some of you are looking at that and you're thinking, well, you know, for Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, it's okay. They put everything on the line, but this angel showed up, and they they were okay. And you can look at things and say, it's okay when things work out well, but what if things don't work out well? 
You know, what if the spouse that you've been praying for never shows up? What if the choices you make mean that you never get promotion at work? What if the things that you say and the things that you believe mean that you don't only not able to witness to your friends, but they actually ostracize you from their community? What if the financial burdens and struggles that you have never go away? What if the physical or emotional healing that you need never happens? What do we do then? How do we worship then? And I want to say, and I want to challenge you, the point at which we say, I can no longer worship God because of X, or I can no longer trust that God loves me because of Y. That's the point that we reveal that we worship God for what he can give us and not for who he is. Now that doesn't sound very empathetic. It doesn't sound very um, kind and loving and thoughtful. But it's not intended to be that way. This is a tough ask for sure. Those things that we go through, and they're they're difficult and they're painful. And you say, well, what are you saying? Do you say I just have to blindly trust and follow through everything no matter what happens? I can't do that. That's too much. And I would say, yeah, you're probably right. You can't. I can't. We can't do that. So where does that leave us? I want to flash forward a little bit in the Bible. And we hear about Jesus. And he came, comes along and he starts his ministry. And um, he's baptized. He's about to start his witness to the world and his ministry. And he goes out into the desert. And he doesn't eat for 40 days and nights. And he's probably at his weakest, lowest point. And the devil comes to him. And the devil basically says, Jesus, who are you going to worship? He takes him to a high place and shows him all the kingdoms of the world and says, if you bow down and worship me, these are all yours. Now what the devil was offering wasn't wrong. Jesus is the rightful ruler. It is right that people come and worship him. But it wasn't the devil's to offer and it wasn't Jesus's to take. It had to be given by God. And Jesus says to him, no, go away. It it says, worship God and God alone. Now, again, some of you might be saying, well, that's okay. It worked out pretty well for him. Angel shows up, feeds him, helps him sleep, gets him, you know, rests him. It's great. But let's fast forward again in the Bible until Jesus is now on his knees in the Garden of Gethsemane, and he's praying to God in anguish. Because God has said to him, look, I want you to worship me by being obedient, and by obedient to dying on a cross, which is going to be painful, and it's going to be uncomfortable, but I want you to do it because that, for you, is worship to me. And Jesus doesn't want to do it. He says, Lord, is there, God, is there any other way? If this is the only way, this is going to happen. But then he says, Lord, not my will, but yours. Which if you think back to our text, but if not this, then I'm going to worship anyway and I'm going to be obedient. And we all know how that transpires. He ends up on the cross dying for us. Not because it was benefit for him. He already had a perfect sinless life. His relationship with God was assured. There was nothing he needed to do. But he did that. He took that and he did that for us. So if the question is, how can we put God first in all things? We need to recognize that that's exactly what Jesus did. And that's exactly what Jesus did, not for him, but for us. In the book of Hebrews in the New Testament, it encourages us to fix our eyes on Jesus, who it it says is the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy, the immeasurable joy set before him, endured the cross, 
So who went to the cross, knowing it's going to work out bad, but did so for the immeasurable joy set before him. Going back again to that Lewis quote, it started off by saying, it would seem that God finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. And I want to end just by saying, look, in our pursuit of God, in our worship, as we think about how we worship, I just encourage you and I encourage myself, hold nothing back. Because Jesus held nothing back for you. I want to take a minute to pray. Band, if you want to come on up. Pray with me. Father God, I want to thank you that you are the loving, sovereign, faithful God. Lord, I want to praise you that you are the God that can rescue us from the fiery furnace and for the the temptations and the struggles that come our way. Lord, I want to praise you that because you are the sovereign God, you deserve to be on the throne. Lord, there is no one else, none other, that deserves the worship that you do. Father, help us to examine our lives. Help us to realize where there are issues and times when we are putting other things ahead of you. And Father, help us to put you in that place of authority, put you on that throne of our lives. Father, I thank you that you sent your son. I thank you that through him, you gave us a perfect example, but you did way more than that. Lord, you made a way. You made a way that when we do slip up, when we do let other things become more important than you, Jesus' work on the cross means that we still can come to you, we can still seek forgiveness, and we can still find you and be in relationship to you. Father, let that sink in, Lord. Let the love of your love and the love of Jesus sink into us, let us respond appropriately to that. Lord, let the example and the power of Jesus come and give us the strength to do the things that you call us to.